Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2021. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. And today we're going to have a very robust discussion about international education. And to help us are two leaders in the field, Michael Green and Ishra Jahan of Sanam S4. So I'm glad that all of you listeners can be here for this important conversation. I think it's important. And as we go along, I think you will agree. But first of all, we are all about storytelling here, and there is another story I want to tell you about. It's the story about how one company can help you solve your commercial real estate needs, whether in town, across the nation, or over the oceans. That company is Levy Commercial Realty, LLC. They provide strategic commercial real estate advisory and brokerage services. I'm talking about retail. I'm talking about restaurant, entertainment, and distribution. Levy's clients include local legends, regional brands, and Fortune 50 companies known around the world. You're going to want to join Levy's select group of clients. Their email is contact at levycommercial.com. That's Levy, L-E-V-Y, commercial.com, and I'll post it on our website. Now back to the show. Without further ado, let me introduce Michael and Ishrat. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank Thank you. (laughs) So let me formally introduce both of you. Uh, We'll start with you, Michael. Tell us briefly about the mission of Sanam S4 and how you came to the company and your role within it. And I probably mispronounced it, so say it correctly for me. Sounds good. No, thank you, Betsy. And we're really happy to be on this podcast with you. Uh, So Sanam S4 is a global market entry firm. So we'll be speaking from uh, that uh, perspective, uh, bringing uh, international markets to um, companies, um, uh, nonprofit organizations, and universities across the globe. Um, Our tagline is explore, enter, expand. Um, So with that, maybe I'll go into a little bit in terms of the firm's background and why we are who we are today. Um, Our founder started Sonom S4, our co-founders started Sonom S4 in uh, 2008. And our CEO uh, in his previous life was head of sales for uh, a UK-based company, uh, that was rolling out the technology, uh, the touchscreen technology that you'll find in pubs, pubs and casinos. Okay. Um, so there he was kind of the head of uh, global sales um, and doing what he thought was a pretty straightforward thing, which was I need to open an entity, open a bank account, 
and hire um, a, a few sales reps in as many markets as quickly as possible. Uh-huh. Um, and quickly what he found out when he was expanding that company was that in every market, the kind of constellation of service providers was a little bit different everywhere. So in some markets, the lawyers could do tax and some markets they couldn't. It was the accountants doing that. Um, so invariably he had, you know, four or five different service providers per market um, and expanding very rapidly. You know, most of his time was spent on a lot of the admin uh, that is involved with uh, expanding um, and opening entities internationally and the nuances that are part of that. Um, So he took some time off and after that company sold, um, you know, know, he 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 decided to uh, uh, start Sonam S4 with his partner. Um, uh, out of out of uh, out of India. Um, so that was in 2008 that Sanam S4 got its start, um, and really the ethos of of the organization is to support globally ambitious organizations as they explore, enter, and expand into new markets um, okay. uh, globally. Um, so what maybe is the I'll word? What does the word Sanam mean? So Sanam S4 is a variety of chili. Um, it's uh, actually uh, the the Gunter chili uh, based in uh, based in India, um, and the the thinking behind it is that you know we're not we're not the cooks or the main ingredient necessarily, but we're a very key ingredient to our clients' um, success in international expansion. So this particular chili is used in, you know, over 80% of the curries made in, made in India. Um, so that was, the, uh, that was the thinking behind the name. And, um, you know, if you see any of our promotional materials, you'll often see this red chili, um, uh, which, is the, which is this Gunter chili, the Sanam S4 chili, the variety. I just had to ask because it's a very cool name and a cool concept. So I want to get that out there anyway. So how did you come to join the company and and what is your role today? So uh, prior to this, so I'm a lawyer by background. And prior to this, I was with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Washington, D.C.'s international division and more specifically the U.S. India Business Council. Uh, which is housed within the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And there, you know, I was, I was managing a, a range of portfolios of member companies, uh, which included life sciences companies, media and entertainment companies, and professional services companies. So mm-hmm. Sonam S4, about two years into my five years with uh, with the chamber, Sonam S4 became a member. I started working closely with their CEO and uh uh, founder Adrian Mutton, um, and um, you know, servicing them as a client, and the work that they were doing really kind of resonated with me because um, the the policy lobbying type work that I was doing on behalf of the media and entertainment and life sciences sectors mm-hmm. were really focused on um, you know Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. Um, that I like to think, 
you know, kind of have the luxury to worry about and, and the luxury to be able to uh, be in the room to try to shape policy. Um, uh, I come from a family of small business owners and, you know, small business owners are just trying to figure out how to, you know, keep the lights on and make payroll and um, do a lot of the kind of nitty gritty that's involved with, uh, with managing and growing a business. So yeah, hooray for small business owners. <laughs> yeah. So Sodom S4's kind of market is, you know, we, we have supported fortune 50 companies actually, but, um, uh, we also support a lot of startups, a lot of um, small, medium-sized uh, companies, as well as, you know, Anishrat will get into it, yes. a whole range of different organizations, including uh, universities. So, and the, and the work that we're doing is really the nuances that, you know, are involved with um, expanding overseas. So from an HR perspective, what what benefits are statutorily required, which benefits are, you know, they might not have to do them, but which, which ones are best practice. Um, So it's these types of nitty gritty issues that our team uh, gets involved in and helps advise on um, and helps implement uh, to ensure the, that kind of market entry and market expansion plan moves as smoothly as possible. Cool, cool. Well, thanks. And and Ishrat, let's um, let's uh, have you tell us a little bit about your background and you know how you came to the company and your role with the company. Sure. So the Sunmas Four, as Michael explained, does a lot of different things, and one of the key industries it works in is the higher education sector, right. and that's where I come in. Um, so I've been working with Education USA. The U.S. Department of State has this program that promotes U.S. higher education to international audiences. So I was working with U.S. embassies, consulates, foreign governments, and with the uh, U.S. higher education sector to kind of help them understand what is it that they need to do, what their strategies might look like, what is international student mobility looking like across my region was specifically South Asia, South and Central Asia, based out of India to see this was one of the largest markets for higher education, not just for the US, but for many different big countries, whether it's Australia, Canada, UK, um, and several others. Um, So it's just about helping. What we were doing was advising folks on the ground how to talk to international students about what's different about US higher education, just because it's the way that US higher education functions is is completely different from other countries and that needed a lot of education. So a lot of the role of US Department of State was bringing that as a information, bringing that education, providing programs that help different people on the ground understand how to work with US higher education and also advising higher education institutions on how they needed to tweak and talk to different audiences in different markets. The way you speak to an Indian student in the North is quite different from the way that you would approach your strategy in South of India or in Bangladesh. And Nepal is a completely different strategy compared to say Pakistan. So helping them understand that different markets, different things resonate with different markets and what those different elements could be. And in that time, I've kind of seen Sanam Uh, kind of expand and grow this higher education sector and had a pleasure of kind of listening and watching and they've been participating in these events with the State Department. 
And I've invited them when I was working at the State Department to come and share their insights because they work with so many different sectors and they work in markets for higher education across. Um, they're seeing a lot of different things, different strategies. Right, right. And what the State Department really needed to know is what can U.S. institutions do to stay competitive, not just with each other within the states, but with actual markets out there. So that's where my introduction to CENMS4 to see how wonderfully they were able to very um, articulate the, in, you know, exactly the strategies that different countries were implementing and what's worked, what hasn't worked, served as, you know, I brought them in to talk to, for example, the Department of um, the deputy assistant secretary at the time to kind of advise her on what are the policies that have impacted in the UK and is US heading in that same direction and what could be those impacts. So that policy level insight was very interesting. Yeah. So when I, when I moved and um, moved back to the United States after serving um, almost a decade with the State Department program um, out in India, Sanam S4 just felt like a great fit because what I was doing out there was a lot of advising and providing free services um, for higher education institutions to do things in the market. But what CENMS4 was doing was being the implementing partner to actually be that folks that could actually implement those strategies. It's one thing right. to talk about what you need to do and providing a few strategies that are free, but to really engage in a market, you need uh, a representative and a partner in that market to help you um, be successful. So that I felt like was such a great fit. And I really wanted to be in that space and the implementing side, because I would often get frustrated that I can't tell you exactly how to do it. You need to find somebody to actually do it for you um, in the country if you don't have somebody in the country, because that's the only way you'll be successful. So CENMS4 strategy for being that extension of a team member, being that extension of the institution um, to do work on their behalf was a space that I wanted to be in and really understand and really support, continue to support US higher education as a sector um, sure. to go into different places. So that's okay. a bit of where I come from. <laughs> I see, no, no, that's, that's a good, really good explanation. Um, Ishra, you, you said to me earlier that you've called higher education the largest quiet exporter. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Sure. So, you know, higher education, we often just see it as, oh, it's there, international students are coming in. But as a service sector, it is the fourth, I think it's been labeled as the fourth largest export of services. I from think that's the United, right, yeah. Yeah, from the United States. And it's almost um, equal to, say, the annual exports of soybeans, corn, textile supplies combined. Gosh. As um, that. <laughs> I'm sure most people don't realize that uh, just because they haven't thought about it. But right. uh, it's, I think it's so important that we're having this discussion today because of that, because it's for so many reasons. Um, and, you know, let's talk about you know, let's build upon that. Why is international education good for the United States? Uh, I'd really like to hear y'all's thoughts on that. What are some of the... You know, it really, it goes back a long way. It goes back to almost after World War II when the United States um, started the Fulbright program as a way to have a to have soft diplomacy tool, to have knowledge exchange. So that we were all working together to create new ideas and um, work together on research. And from there, I think it's State Department still looks to you, you know, looks at higher education as a way to connect with countries in a way that we're 
mutually supporting each other, right? Mm -hmm. So whenever we are going out there, we've supported um, talking to countries about international student mobility, what can US institutions do to support in the education sector? And that really opens doors. What I used to say when I worked at Education USA is, you know, even if a country doesn't have a US embassy or a consulate, um, in the region, there will be an Education USA office in that space because it is such a good way for us to um, leave everything else behind and have a conversation that's more about knowledge exchange. Uh, right. And that's where everyone kind of um, comes to the table. So right. having those researchers that maybe had come to the United States and taking that knowledge back to their home countries or right. um, folks that have studied, you know, come into the United States to study the political uh, sector or study what international, what U.S. is doing in the international space, um, taking that knowledge, to having that space where you're talking to, um, talking to others from different countries, and the U.S. is such a hub for different thoughts, the immigration, right. the way that we have, and people coming in from different places at universities, it just is a place where you can get that variety and get that exposure. And we've yes. had folks that have joined the Fulbright program or other government programs and gone into leadership positions and polit and political positions, whether it's prime minister or being in the cabinets or wherever it might be, having real influence in those countries to promote democracy and support the expansion of and growth, um, whether it's in the economic sector, supporting the export sector, having growth in those countries. So that's really the idea behind higher education's role and really acting as a support to the um, political exchanges, uh, being a soft diplomacy tool, like we like to say. Um, yes, I think yeah, it, it plays that strong support system to it. It does. Here's one of the things that I believe is important uh, in that it supports tuition for U.S. students. And can you all talk a little bit about that? Because I, I don't think everybody understands how the U.S. Uh, higher education systems work um, with regard to international students? So the statistics say that the U.S. Department of Commerce has kind of run the numbers and the financial impact of international students to the U.S. is at about $44 billion at its peak a year. Wow. wow. And that's supporting almost 400,000 jobs across the U.S. with an average of about, I think, 2,600 jobs per state and creating about 5,000 indirect, direct jobs within the higher sector mm -hmm. and the surrounding um, sector around it. So you can think of accommodations. International right. students need a place to stay, need a place to live. Um, right. Whether it's dining, they need to eat, <laughs> whether it's delivery services, so they're supporting in that, retail, even insurance, if you think about that. You know, international students are required to have health insurance or you know, car insurances when they're here telecom transportation i was gonna say data yeah data uh, yeah yeah they're all spending and they're not spending here as a tourist coming in for a short period of time they're here from four years for an undergraduate study and if they're doing their master's they're here for another two years if they're here on their opt they're here for an extended period of time and that's a huge contribution to not only the universities but to the united states sector as an economy as a right. export sector but also just Think of the town, the state that you live in, how much that's supporting. And over the past couple of, you know, the past pandemic influenced years, I would say yeah. the two years we've had, we've seen a huge hit. It's been a 20% drop in that income. And we've seen Absolutely. universities, yeah, it's the universities are suffering, the cities, the towns are suffering. 
just because they don't have that additional income coming in, the revenue coming in. So it is a huge impact when you think about it from the sector point of view. And these, I don't know what percentage, but it seems like most of the international students do not take aid from the, the universities. Most of them are on full tuition. If I mean, you can correct me if that's not correct, but if that's so, or at least many of them, they, they're paying full tuition, help support the students who are on uh, financial aid. Absolutely. You're, you're on point. We don't have the data on exactly what the percentages might be, yeah. but the international students not only help like keeping the tuition down for domestic students, um, but they're, you know, supporting the institution where the lot of budgets have been cut from the state, right? From right. The states, and the universities are impacted by how much they can afford to support the institutions. So international students, full paying students, out of they paid the out-of-state tuition. And where you might have a certain percentage coming from out of states within the United States, international students make up a whole lot more of that. Right. And they're right. supporting the institution staying afloat. So a lot of institutions may have not considered international students as a real revenue generating stream, but you wouldn't want to look at students as numbers either, right? But the fact is that they do help keep costs down for domestic students and they do support right. in keeping universities, their bottom lines afloat as well. Right, right. Ishrat, I was just going to clarify that point in terms of the um, applying for federal aid. Uh, could you speak a little bit about kind of the profile financially of an international student? And, you know, I don't think they can apply for U.S. federal aid. They might no. be getting they might be getting scholarships from their home countries. Right. So maybe if you could uh, provide a little bit more context in terms of the financial, I guess, profile or, or yeah, how, sure. how do these how do these students afford U.S. higher education? And, you know, it's not cheap to study in the United States, but there is such an investment when students from around the world are looking at their their families plan for a long time to to invest into their child's higher education. And, or a lot of countries also have um, their banking systems have a special accommodations to pay for their education if they're studying abroad. For example, in India, that's a special loan that you can take if you can show you're going to a good school in the United States. Um, so that investment comes from the students themselves. They might be getting scholarships, they might be getting um, some support when they're a graduate student, whether they're getting um, stipends or you know, work opportunities to have, help offset that cost. But oftentimes that's a different allocation or they're competing on an even playing sphere with domestic students. They don't, international students cannot access uh, federal funds. So that's never a pot that they've dipped into, right? Unless they're American citizen that have grown up abroad, they obviously have paid taxes in the United States and can access those federal funds. Um, but generally speaking, international students are bringing their own funds from abroad, whether it's their own families and majority, I think the statistics, 80% of them are bringing their own family funds. Um, and these are students that have, um, that are really strong students or they have government funds. Like for example, in Saudi Arabia, there was um, a King Abdullah fund to support um, a, a student studying abroad to bring back that knowledge back to the country. So there was an entire country supporting scholarships and so many countries like that that support um, their students studying abroad um, at right. institutions. So the international students, when they're coming in, they might be getting scholarships of various sizes, but they're all competing in the same, um, same sphere and the same space right. as other students might be. 
Right, right. Well, um, if you can explain a little bit more about uh, how your company, what the services that you provide for higher education organizations, what are some of those services? Just dig into it a little more. Sure. And yeah, Ishrat, maybe I can kind of kick it kick it off and then you, you can Go get a little it. bit more into the uh, detail. I'll, I'll provide just kind of a, a story arc to where we're at right now with mm-hmm. higher education and serving that sector. So one of the services that SANMS4 provides is called in-country representation. And that is uh, when an organization, a company, uh, and in this case, a university wants to make sure they have someone on the ground in a foreign market full-time kind of representing them. So um, we've worked with a number of organizations um, and again, in this case, higher education institutions to provide them the res- that, that, that resource or in some case resources to essentially wave the flag of the institution, uh, wave the flag of the organization, of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, when SANMS4 was established, I think the idea was that this in-country representation model would be used quite a bit from the corporate community. Um, however, you know, we found that corporates are less, they're more keen on uh, setting up local entities and getting their own bank account and transacting locally, doing business locally. Under this model, you have no bank account, you have no ability to transact um, Mm -hmm. as an organization locally because you have no entity. But what we found for higher education institutions was that this wasn't necessarily a temporary solution for them as we had originally designed it, but a longer term solution that they could utilize. So, you know, there's some um, uh, public, uh, large US public universities that would have been with us for, you know, eight, nine years now um, that have representatives Uh, multiple representatives in India, um, representatives uh, in the Middle East and other parts of the, uh, and other parts of the world that are flying that institution's flag, that are being the main point of contact for the university uh, in that country, um, and uh, being the main point of contact for students and parents uh, who really want to know that they're child is being well taken care of and that they have somebody that they can call locally um, uh, to support their students kind of um, uh, endeavor to, to, to study in the United States. So right. over the years that, you know, that's grown to, you know, over 80 universities from eight or nine different uh, countries that we now, uh, that we now represent. And um, what Ishrat was talking about in terms of earlier, in terms of the perspective that we bring is that, you know, since we are representing not just U.S. universities, but also Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, U.K.-based institutions, we have a very good kind of view of what U.S. generally kind of competition looks like yeah. um, and what the other countries are doing to position themselves in their universities uh, to be able to, um, 
you know, attract international talent, attract international students. Um, so that's always been kind of the core of our higher education work. Um, okay. And as we became more well known in the space, we started working with top universities in the US who yeah. are um, uh, not necessarily needing to raise the profile of their school because uh, everybody knows the, those schools right. and they, they right. get plenty of applications, but we're supporting them more on the kind of market entry of you know, the regulatory environments, uh, setting up legal entities, moving money, uh, internationally, hiring people locally under their own uh, their own governance, their own kind right. of legal setup. So, yeah. our our support kind of spans the full range. Um, and you know, Ishrat's come on board and uh, really put additional thought into particularly the student mobility aspect of what our um, what our clients and what our universities come. Uh, come to us for so right. um, I'll, I'll stop there and then maybe Ishrat can really build upon that because we've really kind of developed out that offering Absolutely. Uh, over the last year or so and I just like to say just kind of throw this into the discussion I have a perspective as a parent who's both uh, both of my children uh, took part in study abroad and as a parent all you want to, what you want to see is that it's a smooth transition, that the program overseas is supportive of your, your student, you know, and that, I mean, they just seem to know what they're doing on the ground in that city, in that country. So, you know, that's just the parent's perspective without knowing what the back end uh, is. Of, of making that happen. And it, it seems to me y'all are kind of the back end of that, uh, you know, perspective. Absolutely. I think that's where we kind of lend support is where the quiet partners that's going to be looking out for you, right. um, looking out for the institution and um, kind of advising and ensuring that what they're doing is the right thing and kind of going back and forth. And that's what we do with the in-country uh, representative uh, as a model. We have a way to ensure that they have a roadmap. This is how you do business. This is the strategy that we work together to build and we'll ensure that this is being followed. If there's adjustments that need to be made or new things are happening, um, we're very quick and agile to ensure that that adjustment takes place as well. Right. Um, and speaking of domestic American students, you know, there's more and more students interested in going to study abroad um, and having that international experience as well. And we also support some, some other countries that have representatives in the United States as well to kind right. of um, help domestic students navigate that space. But one of the stories that I want to say is, you know, over the past couple past two years where things have completely changed um, and there's been a shift in the way that institutions have had to engage with international audiences, there's a couple of things that have happened, right? Um, so institutions have reacted um, reacted to not being able to travel and meet, meet the students in person, being able to communicate with them in person, to meet those parents that have questions in person. The other side is, you know, with different countries having different types of lockdowns, complete school shutdowns, there's been some countries like in Bangladesh and some in India 
where students haven't set foot inside a school for almost close to two years now. Um, what are the examinations look like? What does it look like for them as their transcripts are rolling out? So in support of that, uh, one of the things that US higher education institutions did is made test requirements um, not as necessary. So one of the key factors of admissions is you need to showcase your academic um, strength. And that was through taking those SATs, ACT mm -hmm. tests um, that we all familiar and grew up with. Yeah. So they made that kind of um, not as mandatory because students were having a hard time. You know, you don't want students to be gathering in strange places and centers to take these right. tests. Um, how would you execute those tests in the middle of a lockdown? So they made that generally taking that off the table. And what resulted was um, excitement as institutions started to see more applications coming in than they had previously seen. Because now students have a lot more choices. Um, they have, you know, where an Ivy League school might be a barrier in the past, taking that test, making a test optional, all of a sudden they could submit yeah. their applications. So we saw lots of institutions that had an influx of applications coming in from international students. Now, what do you do with that, right? What does that translate into? There's a lot of excitement around we have huge applications. So one of the key questions I ask is, tell me what's how many of those applications were completed? How many of those applications actually resulted in you admitting that student? So what's the ratio between that and ultimately how many enrolled? And as you have these conversations, oftentimes we see that number starting to come down. Right. Um, because what they missed is, you know, while there's also what's happened in the past couple of years, there's lots of players in the market because you're not able to travel. There's been a lot of platforms, tech platforms out there that's been giving a lot of support to engage students on different ways. Now, what Sunam brings to the table is, you know, while we can work with every all the other strategies you have in place to generate leads, to have your brand out there, to have your presence out there, so international students can find you, can talk to you, can engage with you, know if that's the right fit for you. What Sunam continues to provide through the in-country presence and our new services that we've built out is having somebody on the ground to help facilitate, to ensure that those students are the right fit for the school, that those students are making the right decisions, their questions are being answered in real time while they're awake. Um, and those parents are having somebody, have somebody to speak to directly instead of having to wait for an appointment. Maybe they've got lost interest and, you know, they've moved on. So what yeah. some of, so that in-country presence kind of gives you that, right? You have a dedicated right. person in the country running things for you while you sleep and can function and when you wake up in the morning. Oh, um, I see. They help a real human, you mean? Yes, a real person. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that's we bring to cool. the table. You know, as much as we yeah. work with all these technology and they're amazing to work with, but ultimately, you know, you get to a point where those students need somebody human to speak to, a human that understands the school, a human that understands them and their issues, because, for example, in India, students are having to deal with financial constraints. Their key family members, um, breadwinners of those families may have been taken away by COVID. Um, in Bangladesh, the sector has been hit so hard, so many folks are out of work, that finances are being, being diverted to medical expenses or other, just survival mode. You oh, know? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you manage those expectations? How do you know if someone is there for you in real time talking on your behalf as an institution to say, no, we've got the support system you need. We'll make it flexible. We have scholarships available or this is how we're going to support you um, if you're still, you know, if you're a really good fit for us as an institution, as a student. And so in-country presence kind of gives you that 
you know, full-time part of your office, somebody on the ground to do that. One of our new services is a lot of institutions can't afford to have somebody on the ground. Um, they don't need a full staff on the ground. Um, right. Maybe they're a smaller institution or institution that has that capacity. Um, what we've created is this PACE solution. It's called Prospect, Admit, Conversion, Enroll. It's really pulling the levers where you need it in that journey for a student, in that admission cycle that institutions go through with students. So for example, we just need a lot of help. School might come to us and say, we just need help to get really good students that we know we can work with and help them through the application process. So we right. run those very structured, unique to that institution, unique to that program, digital campaigns. And our digital campaigns are unique because we know the market. We know that that school's um, subjects, that school's programs are gonna resonate with those very specific student groups in a specific cities, right? India right. is very big. You can't just say all India, we're gonna do this. No, the right. north of India has a different type of student that have uh, different needs. The south of India are looking at STEM subjects. They have different needs. So we target those digital campaigns to ensure they're reaching the right audience. And we do this for a number of different markets, whether it's Bangladesh, Nepal, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, even as far as we're working on a campaign in South Korea, we've done some um, others on this side in Africa and Latin, and we can also do that. So we have that going. Yeah. School comes to us and says, we don't need lead generation. We have so many students that are coming to us. We really need help in making sure that they're the right students for us. Or we need help in making sure that the applications are complete by the time they get to us. We just don't have the capacity to ensure that these, we can't respond to them in time. There's just too many emails coming at, coming right. at us. Oh, That's yeah. where we can step in and say, fine, we have our little hub of support from the PACE, uh, PACE sector, PACE service line, will give you that support for when you need it, for how much time you need it for, and hand over those project um, end results to you. So you have um, completed applications to look at, and we've done all the groundwork for you, talking to the students, making sure they have their transcripts, kind of advising on what's, how to get those transcripts to them, working with the professors back at the institution to ensure that they're responding timely, so we've seen a lot of success in our partners that have implemented on the ground support and turned around applications, meaning that they've responded to the students in a timely fashion because US, US higher education has a history of taking really long <laughs> to respond to international students because there's a lot of things that you have processes we have to go through. So having that person on the ground kind of shortens that window and it's as, as small as window you can make it keeping in mind that international students have a lot more choices now than they have had previously. All of a sudden I'm hearing from schools saying, the student, we're not their first choice anymore. We're maybe their third choice because their first choice is maybe Germany, maybe going to um, China because they're the they're really coming out as competitor in the AI sector. You know, students want to go to China and to the cutting edge research in AI. Um, they want to go to uh, Japan now or within their home countries, institutions right. are leveling up. So they're really working hard in making sure that the curriculum meets the needs and the demands of the local market. So some students are saying, you know, I wanna make sure that I get into an IIT in India, for example, or to Buet in Bangladesh. That's one of the top engineering, engineering schools in Bangladesh before <laughs> I decide whether I'm gonna travel abroad, especially under current circumstances. Sure, sure. But you, having those, um, people on the ground really kind of drives your brand, has, gives you that voice to interact with international students. So that pace piece um, 
I found exciting when I came and joined Sunem because that kind of gave a lot of flexibility to hire an institution to say, I'm not going to invest a whole lot, but I need it where I need it. I can go where I can use it when I need to, where sure. I need it. Yeah. I so see. that's Michael. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to bring up something a little, this a little kind of a transition to another subject uh, re that's related, but um, I understand because y'all educated me on this that Secretary of State Blinken uh, has issued a new initiative. Uh, I believe it's called a renewed U.S. commitment to international education, which is, you know, a, a real change from the last administration to this administration. And I'm going to post a link to that initiative on, you know, the episode page. Uh, but can you all explain something about the highlights of this initiative? So one of the great things about this initiative, it is a renewed um, renewed support from the White House mm -hmm. to look at international education and supporting higher education sector as a whole to say we, yeah. we are behind you. What's really different about this is so many different offices, so many different um, departments have come together to be in the same voice. Because to yeah. make international student mobility happen to the United States, it's not just the sole responsibility of US higher education sector. US Department of Education has traditionally focused on domestic issues, not necessarily international. Just to have the US Department of Education partner with the US Department of State to put this statement out is a huge statement and huge shift and a commitment that the US Department of Education is now is going to be supporting actively um, higher education sector on their um, international on the international front. Um, in addition to that, you know, commerce needs to be involved because it is a service export sector, right? right. Um, and also the Department of Homeland Security needs to be involved because international students in order to come here need the appropriate visa. And with that, you need the support of the Department of Homeland Security. So to have all of those voices come together mm -hmm and everyone jointly come to the platform and to have Secretary Bilkin out there saying we are committed to this. It's a huge shift and a huge voice um, right. and support for US higher education globally. Because of the past four years, there's been a huge um, shift in, you know, do I wanna come to the United States? Is this the right place for me? Am I going to right. feel welcome there? Um, with what's happening just socially in the United States, that's been a huge concern for families to send their kids abroad. Sure. To see this joint statement come out that there's a renewed commitment from the White House to look at international students, see them and support them. It's right. a huge commitment. It's a huge statement for the world. Yeah, and an acknowledgement of the value, the, I mean, let's face it, the economic value that Absolutely. international students brings to the US recognition of that right yeah yeah that, I mean I think that's what it says as well so uh, Michael tell us about how Sanam S4 works with the U.S. government in a number of different ways is, is the answer <laughs> we are strategic partners with the U.S. Department of Commerce um, so uh, the Department of Commerce of course has a number of programs um, and uh, resources to be able to provide U.S. organizations that are looking to expand their uh, goods and services internationally. Um, one that we're very familiar with is um, their Gold Key service. Yes. Um, so they provide um, uh, local kind of market intelligence, uh, B2B connectivity, 
help um, U.S. exporters find distributors um, mm -hmm. and uh, really make those uh, kind of local connections and do um, a certain level of diligence on markets. They also, as part of Gold Key, but uh, separately have missions that go out uh, across the globe uh, regularly in COVID times, many of these have turned uh, virtual, but, um, you know, I think any organization, university, company uh, that wants to expand overseas, uh, it's imperative that they actually visit the country that they want to expand in. So they begin to develop their own perspective uh, and can really understand how um, uh, how their company or, or university in the university case, kind of how their curricula kind of translates directly into, uh, the market and the U S department of commerce can be a huge, um, uh, support for that. So where we've always seen ourselves as kind of gold key, well, what's next after gold key and, um, Ishrat, I think, alluded to it earlier when she was at uh, Department of State uh, in terms of, you know, some strategies, but the implementation piece is usually, it's not something the U.S. government provides as a service. You know, if Absolutely. you want someone full time, you know, the U.S. government isn't going to use U.S. taxpayer dollars to, you know, hire you a consultant full time to, to, to work on your behalf. So. Correct. That's really, uh, Ishrat, do you want to ex ex expand upon that? And then maybe I can get into a little bit more, um, not just commerce, but state and some of the other agencies yeah. that we work with. Right. So the U.S. higher education, I mean, the State Department and the commerce, the, what they're there, to, there as a service sector support is to provide information and give you connections and provide um, strategies that are very broad view. These are things that you need to do and provide country level insights. But what they really cannot um, deliver on is the actual Im implementation of how you go about to do this. So that's where, um, you know, one of the things that we advocate for always is the private sector and public sector collaboration. And that's where I think Sanam kind of sits in that position is we bring yeah. that collaborative spirit to our um, counterparts at the government to say, you know, we understand, we see where you're going, but we're here to kind of lend that next level of support, the next step. We're listen. here to provide that and listen and provide that not only to folks coming to you, but yeah. provide you with insights on what's happening in actual implementation and how that also kind of drives policy and maybe can also develop new strategies for them as well. So right. playing that role, um, I think is where we kind of do well in. Okay, cool, cool. I think what we'll do, just because we're running out of little time here, because <laughs> there's so much to talk about, but yeah. um, I would love it if y'all have any stories to share with us, kind of exemplifies what y'all do and, and, you know, in a more real world way. We'd love to hear some of your stories. Ooh. So who wants to start? <laughs> Michael, do you want to start? <laughs> oh, stories. I mean, there's 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 a lot of different a uh, lot of different stories. Maybe I'll 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 share this one, and it, it does involve a higher education client, but not necessarily focused on student mobility. So, um, okay, yeah. Ishrat, maybe you can reserve your 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 one for that. Okay. But 
Um, I spent two years in, in Mumbai uh, as the general manager of our, of our India business. And uh-huh. one of the top, won't mention their name, but one of the top US uh, universities is a client that we serve there. They have an entity set up and they have a number of um, uh, staff. Uh, that they have to pay. So they have a lot of personal information of these individuals, including how much they're paid. Um, and we, we essentially run their payroll for them. Oh, well, they, wow. they went through, in, in, in only in India, um, they went through a huge kind of information. I think they may have been hacked. Um, and mm. they went through kind of a huge kind of information security crisis on campus and therefore had to ensure that all of their vendors, um, you know, had proper information security um, yeah. controls in place. And, you know, Sonam S4 being one of their, one of their members, um, you know, we went through a pretty extensive process to uh, become ISO 27001 certified. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, I share this story because there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that people do not see. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort to ensure that what is happening behind the scenes um, you know, is compliant, is best practice, is uh, okay. effective and efficient uh, for our clients that are operating kind of internationally. So we're providing a whole range of services, you know, accounting, payroll, corporate secretarial uh, work to this particular client. Um, uh, but, you know, we really partner with all of our, all of our uh, uh, clients to, uh, ensure that um, they're getting what they need, uh, and we're continuing, you know, the the their expansion journey with them. Right. Um, right. So maybe I'll, you know, stop there. And Ishrat, uh, <laughs> over to you for perhaps one that's more focused on, you know, just the student mobility. I mean, we were on a call just the other day. Um, regarding China and students being caught up at the airport there uh, because they don't have the right documentation. I mean, whenever you're talking about moving around the globe, there's always all sorts of, you know, things that can, (laughs) things that can happen, but over to you. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, we keep hearing of not only what's happening in China, but also with students just around the world, you know, they're struggling to get on, get a flight that will come make, take them to the United States while still adhering to COVID protocols at flight seven place. So that in itself is a struggle, but my story kind of goes back to what I've seen in my previous time being in India and working with the state department. And then what I see has developed in Senem. So when I was at uh, when I was serving with the U.S. with Education USA with um, working closely with the State Department and with the U.S. embassies, one of the key things that would come up was XYZ University is really looking to do partnerships and have these real relationships, whether it's a study abroad program or a professor exchange or um, a two plus two degree program, a pathway program for institutions. The university goes in. These, all these Indian institutions have been knocking on their door saying, hey, come to us, we wanna work with you. Um, yeah. Or Bangladesh universities, you know, come knock, knocking on the door. We wanna work with you, we wanna work with you. You're a great name, you have a great program. We would love to 
um, bring your curriculum into our school and how do we partner? And the institution in the US has said, wow, this is fantastic, this works. We know somebody from the country, we know somebody, we have a professor that um, can you really drive this, um, this partnership. So the, ex yeah. the professor comes in um, and is leading these efforts and they've built this MOU. They've worked with the department in that university and they've developed this fabulous MOU. The, the presidents have come in, shook their hands, it's made the press releases, it's made social media, it's all the noises out there. Um, the XYZ University from the United States has partnered with XYZ University in India or in Bangladesh, um, and it's very exciting. Uh-huh. And then what? <laughs> then, what? I, then what happens? And then the university will come back and say, what's going on in that partnership? Well, things aren't moving forward because the university in India or the other side of, you know, the other side of it, they're having struggles with getting compliance done or within their institution, figuring out how to actually make it work. Or that professor has left, has moved on. So there's no one leading this effort, whether it's in the US side or on the other side. Now you go to the government for help, what can the embassy do except talk to the ministry? And the ministry will say, well, you know, that's really an issue between the two schools. Um, there is no support system for how do you actually execute and implement on the ground the MOU to become a successful MOU. Are there programs that are successful and run? Yes, absolutely. When you have those individuals committed to making sure that that program gets off the ground and there are students that understand what it is and they yeah. participate in it. But more often than not, we have these situations where the person who led that effort may, long, may no longer be there or has moved down from that position. Oh, wow. And that MOU is just sitting there hanging very beautifully up on the wall <laughs> um, or on the university's website saying, yes, we have these MOUs. So an implementing partner like Sanam S4. So what we've strategized is one thing that the US State Department, when I was there, we've constantly struggled with is we need somebody to help make sure that the partnerships are right. So that XYZ University in the US is actually partnering with the right fit institution sure. in the foreign country, right? right? How do you make sure to do that? There's nobody in this space except doing it one-on-one -on -one basis on an individual partnership basis to really support that. Um, so what Senem's launched this month is a TNE matchmaking tool, a partnership matchmaking tool that's completely AI driven. Can you imagine wow. that? So, U.S. University can now put in all of their information that they're looking for, and this tool will produce a list of institutions that could be possible, good fits for this institution. Um, and then you, the institution can proceed forward with these specific list of schools, right. or you can contact someone like Sanam to facilitate the conversation in the market, whether it's in Indonesia, whether it's in Vietnam or in Malaysia, we have people on the ground to make sure that that conversation happens um, and it's a fruitful conversation, that it's a productive relationship beyond just having an MOU signed. It is a relationship that has uh, defined goals, defined strategies, defined um, outcomes for both institutions. And there's always been a missing piece. Who is going to look after the students that are going to go through that entire pathway process? Right. You know, whose responsibility is that? So we've also we've also seen a lot of a lot of relationships fail because there's not enough students going through that program partnership, whether right. it's from the U.S. going to India, whether it's a professor exchange. More importantly, it's those pathway programs, the two plus two, two years in their home country, two years in the United States. 
who's going to be responsible for ensuring those students are making it successfully through. And we've seen models that are successful, right? I've worked in Central Asia with Nazarbayev University, and they have an entire office dedicated to those partnership relationships. But most institutions in India are still building those offices. They're still creating those international student offices to ensure those partnerships happen. What Sanam does has created a new program called the Global Gateway Program in partnership with this matchmaking tool that if you join this as a member, we only not only look at facilitating having these fruitful partnerships with the right fit partner for your specific programs, uh-huh. but also ensure that students will make the entire journey through, not only with the local institution, but also ultimately ending at the partner institution in, um, in the United States. Oh, so wow. We'll make sure that that student crosses that, yeah. so that revenues from both schools exactly is looked after like who's looking after that from a third party then is is your partner on the other side going to look at your revenue possibly not are you going to consider the other school's revenue you need somebody that's a central party to really look at how are we ensuring the productive use of that so that's my story of you know i've seen this happen i've seen it go through and i've seen those beautiful plaques mous and so many universities that i've visited and president offices i've been in um, and I'm so excited to be here at Senum that we've created an entire tool, a free tool for yeah. institutions to find um, a partner institute, to find future partners. Right. And not only that, this entire program that you can join that'll facilitate that entire journey. So really excited to see how this comes about. Oh, it sounds so efficient. I mean, right? all the time that's wasted, you know, before. It saves exactly. so much time. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, well, let me say this. I wish we could have some more time. This is such a great discussion. And I am so grateful to you, uh, Ishrat and Michael, for joining us today. What a great discussion. Um, You know, to our listeners, we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode and, you know, as well as general discussions about exporting. So please reach out to us on our exportstoriespodcast.com. There's an episode page for this episode, and you can just ask your questions or post your comments there. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, We're creating a community of exporters here. So, you know, please reach out and chat. But I just want to thank you, Ishrat and Michael, again, for being here today. It was great having you. Thank you, Betsy. It was wonderful being here. Thank Thank you for having us, Betsy. Our pleasure. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 